You're listening to episode 21 of Daughters on Fire. I'm your host, Melissa Burton, and today I'm going to bring you a story of strength. This is something we hope to bring you from time to time, and that is to really dive deep with an amazing caregiver who can share their stories, their experiences, and maybe tap into what we're all experiencing, what we've all been through, the ups and downs of taking care of those people we love. In addition to this being a story of strength, this is also going to be um, in line with our Father's Day tribute. Laurel Burton, who we'll be speaking with today, has a story about how she cared for her father, and it's very touching and very timely as we are continuing to celebrate dads. So stay tuned as we get to know Laurel Burton. Are you stressed, burned out, and looking for answers as you care for an aging parent? If you are, this podcast is for you. Here you will receive actionable advice from seasoned professionals, validation and compassion for the incredibly tough job you are doing, and most importantly, supportive love from a community of like-minded warriors. You're not alone. Join this powerful community as we support you on your complicated journey and help you transform into an empowered and calmer caregiver. All right, welcome back. Daughters on Fire. Today, I have Laurel Burton here with us, and we're going to talk with Laurel for a little bit about her amazing story of strength. And, um, well, just some disclosure, Laurel is not just a good friend of mine, but my sister-in-law. So I have walked with her along the way, um, not hand in hand. You've definitely, you and your family have been on a journey with with your um, parents, not our shared in-laws. Um And it's been an amazing story, and you've been through quite a lot, and it's been very inspirational. So for our listeners out there, Laurel Burton is a Christian wife, mother, school teacher, blogger, and farmer. She currently teaches library and technology at Columbia Academy. Her and Chris have been married for over 30 years, and you have two amazing daughters, Calry and Abby, and Calry is engaged, so you'll have a son in law at least here pretty soon i think in the next year and a half or so um she lives on an amazing farm um and, and you love nature and hiking and all things um that god has given us right right yeah but yeah. we have we're having her on today for another reason and that is her story of her journey of caregiving she is actively caregiving still for her mom but her story of caregiving for her father and since this is june and we are doing all things tribute to the amazing um dads and men in our lives i wanted laurel to share her story about caregiving her amazing story of strength about caregiving for her her dad and what she's learned along the way so laurel welcome I'm glad you're here with me today. Fill in the blanks. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and just your story. Uh, thanks, Melissa. I appreciate you having me on here. It's a privilege to to be here and share part of my story. I hope it can reach anybody out there who's also struggling or has been struggling and know they're not alone. Um, not much more to add. Uh, right now, we're just enjoying spring and summer and the things that, like you said, God, you know, everything gets so green on the farm and all the animals come out. So we're enjoying those kind of things in summer, being out of school and just life on the farm. How's it been? This is Laurel's first 
um, year to be living on the farm through, you know, the spring and heading into summer. How has it been waking up each morning to all those amazing vistas? <laughs> I'm jealous. I'm really jealous. I know anybody who would, who you've been out here enough to know how beautiful it is. Um, but we are enjoying it. It's very quiet. So that was, that was a lot to get used to, but spending the weekends out here, the 10 years before a lot of weekends anyway, we kind of know, you know, the caretaking part of the farm. So a lot of mowing, a lot of weeding and, and we have a garden and, you know, there's, there's a lot of things to do when you're a farmer and a farmer's yeah. wife. Yeah. <laughs> and I bet that, um, farming was over those last 10 years was a good self-care, um, distractor from the ups and downs of caregiving. Yes. Having something to do with your hands that you don't have to use your brain very much is, is very therapeutic. That is true. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit more about your dad and your journey with him through caregiving and dementia. So my dad died in September of 2011. So this September, it'll be nine years. It's hard to believe. He was only 81, 81 or 82. I can't remember uh, when he died, but he had dementia. You know, they don't call it alzheimer's unless they have proof or they know it's early onset so it was just grouped into dementia but you know the first few years before that maybe 10 years before that you can see signs of it happening you know um so we knew it was coming and then there were major things that happened like he didn't come home one night because he got lost um you know different things like that and and you have to learn and think, what am I going to do now? Because we don't want that to happen. You know, my mom and he would go to the mall and he would sit and wait for her while she was shopping. And when she came back one time, he wasn't there. So he had just started wandering the mall. So we had to call mall security. And so there's all these kind of incidents like that where it's not normal. It's not normal anymore. What's going on? Um, so... So really bad, you know, it got, it got to where my mom thought he was sick, like with sinus things, but it turned out his throat has had atrophied and he couldn't swallow. So that's what ultimately killed him. But I'm really glad looking back because I've heard so many people say their, their loved one has been, has had dementia for years or, you know, I mean like 15 years. I know one lady. And, and I could not imagine having to deal with that for 15 years. Just the few months that we really dealt with it, maybe a year, that was hard enough. But people who deal with it for years and years, especially if they're the sole caretaker, they've got to have an outlet. They've got to have somebody they can talk with somebody who can empathize and sympathize and they've got to have a break you know especially if they're if the if the person with dementia is violent I'm, I'm very thankful my dad was not violent he never didn't know my mother um which was really good but when she wasn't around you know you could 
see the lost look on his face. Um, even with, with us kids with him, he didn't know, you know, he really didn't know us at the end. But so once his throat, once he quit eating, couldn't swallow, he lasted about a week. And we called in hospice. So uh, they're a very good resource. Obviously, you, you tell your clients that, I'm sure. And it's funny because the hospice nurse, I asked her, I said, she goes, I know what you're going to ask me. I said, how long does my dad have? And she told me two weeks, but it was two days that he died. So, oh, wow. Yeah. But, you know, even though you prepare yourself for their death, you're not prepared. So, or prepare yourself for anything. You know, you think, okay, they've been diagnosed with dementia. This is what this means. But there's so much that can happen with mm-hmm. dementia and so many, so many things that you don't think about or you're not prepared for. So, yeah. So that's kind of, that's kind of where we were, where we, you know, and I'm the youngest of four um, kids. And, it's interesting. That's a no- whole nother dynamic, how people react to things. I had, even though I'm the youngest, I was the one making all the decisions. Even though my mom had to sign off on everything, I had to make the decision. You know, nobody would do that. Um, so that was very difficult and hard to do. And a couple of my siblings were not the hospice nurse said to my said about my brother that he wasn't even on the planet because you know mm-hmm. the week before my daddy died my brother said we need to get him a treadmill and I'm like what he oh, you know wow. he can't, he's not eating he can't exercise you know so people deal with it in their own way you know yeah. my my uh, my couple my other sister she didn't want to think about it didn't want to have to deal with it um. So, you know, but but you do what you have to do when you're the caretaker. You do what you have to do. Um, there were things that I did as a daughter no daughter should ever have to do mm-hmm. to their daddy. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah. I did it because I wanted him to be, to have dignity. And, you know, because it's like you can see the look on their face. They know, they know that something's wrong, mm-hmm. but they, they can't communicate it to you and you can't make them understand Mm -hmm. you know here's what's going on so yeah and in that moment all you can do is is carry their burden and carry their care out of love um that they have they have as caregivers i know we have um and those some of us have harder journeys than others we have a really hard part of the journey but to age and to decline and to die is a much harder part of the journey. And if we can at least stand by and be the strength and witness and love that they need on that journey, then that's a yes. gift we can give them. And the patients too, because especially with a dementia patient, because they, you know, they ask you the same thing over and over and over. And I can see my, because I wasn't with him 24-7 like my mom was, I could see that in her, the impatience. And and I made sure she got a break. You know, I would I would send her go shop and go do something and I'll stay with dad, you know. Or when I was there, um, you know, helping around the house, I'm like, go, you know. So she, it's important to get the break and to, to do something for yourself as the caregiver. 
Yeah. So this journey with your dad, I know the end stage of it was the most difficult and the most hands-on, but tell me a little bit more about your dad and um, let's get to know him a little bit. Cause I know that's, that's one of the things about this honoring our dads and father's day and the men in our lives is that um, as caregivers that we remember who they were, were before this disease stole them away. Um, so tell me more about your dad, and then I want to maybe on that journey of how he was stolen away. What were like, I'm sure that was probably a very painful part of the journey, is those little small parts that were taken away, you know, a piece at a time. Yeah. Okay. I'll try to get through it. <laughs> yeah. um, dad was funny. He was a jokester. He was a salesman. So there was I will say your dad was funny. He was, <laughs> he would always these random jokes. I will attest yes. to that. <laughs> yes. And he being a salesman never never met a stranger. You know, he talked to anybody and everybody and he just liked people. Um goodness. He was just he was just a good dad, you know. What was your relationship like with him personally? It was great. You know, he he was the kind of person, and I'm sort of like this. It's funny. He was the kind of person who just kind of went along in life. You know, whatever happened, he just wrote it, kind of. Um, he didn't worry about, at least he didn't appear to worry about things. So, uh, sorry. <laughs> That's all right. It just shows that yeah. uh, even after nine years, his impact on your life has not faded with time. It's funny how, you know, yes, it's been nine years, but like one day, this has probably been maybe three or four years into it. I was emptying the dishwasher and I thought, my dad will never eat at my house again. Mm. So don't be surprised if you see something or smell something or there's a man at church right now who reminds me of my dad he's got my dad's big brown eyes and personality so but that's a good thing you know to see my dad and somebody else yeah uh, wow so laurel i'm gonna do my best not to break up with you here <laughs> Okay. <laughs> to break up with, with, sorry. Up with you because I know the pain of uh, and the amount of love that you have for your dad um, and that's what I love your vulnerability right now when I am in counseling with families um, I always want them to know that the space is sacred space together it's it's big enough for any emotion that comes and um, in these emotions of grief Again, it's it's just reflective of the amount of love that you had for your dad. It is that. And, you know, people, I don't think people are allowed to express their emotion and true emotion and true sadness, you know, like we should mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in everyday life. You know, if I'm crying, my husband will say, why are you crying? I'm like, sometimes I just need to cry, you know. Yeah. And it's the same thing with with grief. There, there are going to be times it just hits you, and you got to be able to go, okay, I got to cry about this. You know, this is it. It's it's because I think if you hold those things in, 
you're not being fair to yourself. It's not good for you. It's it's very unhealthy. I think either in even physically, but definitely emotionally and spiritually. And but finding that outlet or somebody that understands and you can talk with, you know, is is great. Is, Do is, you find that you have that that you have a like a good safe spaces to express your um, emotions? Yes. Chris is pretty good about it. He doesn't, I think it's part of it for a husband and maybe just men in general, they don't like to see somebody they love upset, you know, mm-hmm. but, but my, my sister next to me, I have two older sisters and an older brother. So my sister next to me, um, she and I handled things very similarly. She, she was right there with me, uh, supporting everything, every decision, um, she was, yeah, I was the only one not working outside the home at the time my dad died. So I was, that's one reason it was a blessing to be able to, to be there every day in, or anytime I'm, I was needed, but she was there and was able to, and she, even today we'll talk about dad and, and I joke with her that she's taken up, we'll go somewhere together and, and she's talking to everybody. I'm like, you're taking up where dad left off, you know, (laughs) talking to everybody. So, yeah, I have, I have, um, you know, and then, you know, family and friends. Yes. Yes. What about, um, so your dad, how is he still with you? Where does he show up for you? Oh, goodness. I think about a joke he told (laughs) or dad would, we say that all the time. Dad would have liked that or, um, like if somebody said, well, my dad would have said deep subject for a shallow mind, you know, <laughs> he would, he would just always have a wise crack. Yeah. And so we, we do that every, we all do that. My kids, Chris, my husband, um, my, my siblings, my mom, even, you know, she doesn't like to talk about him very much, but she will on occasion, you know, mention him and, and, um, and I'll say, well, dad would have liked that or, you know, so Every in everyday life, things come up like that. That that are little things to you, but it helps you remember that person. You mentioned a little bit ago about how um, you're kind of similar to your dad with how kind of go with the flow. How are you when you think more about that? How are you more similar to your dad, and it shows up where you gain strength because you're like, hmm, yeah, this is dad. This is dad living in me, and me, you know, living our legacy. I think not taking life so seriously. Mm. Um, he didn't take like ser- life seriously. He he was in the Navy in the 1948 to 1950, and I think that influenced him a lot. He he would tell me stories about the other sailors' behavior and how he never wanted to be that way, and so that that influenced me a lot knowing he had the strength not to succumb to peer pressure, you know, to go along with the other sailors and get tattoos and drink and whatever else they do. Um, (laughs) So that was a big influence, but just not taking life serious sometimes. I mean, sometimes you have to and and all of that, but, um, and laughing, goodness, laughing is one of the best therapies there is. Um, Mm -hmm. Laughing at yourself. You know, he was good at that, too. And and if somebody got upset with him, he would make it right and then not worry about it after that. You know, it, it was done. It was done. It, it was behind. We're moving on kind of thing. So there's a lot of, a lot of lessons, life lessons like that I learned from dad. 
do you feel like you're um you channel him especially now i know you're still um caring for your mom she's still really independent in her 90s right right she will be 91 in july next month wow but she still needs some assistance here and there do you find that you're asking yourself what would dad do or how can i what would dad want me to do for mom yeah i have thought about that um you know because she'll say things i know she misses him terribly even today because she'll say she falls asleep in her easy chair and she'll wake up and start to tell him something and look over and he's of course not there Mm -hmm. in his easy chair so i think i think honoring her is honoring him Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. taking care of her is what he would want us to do Mm -hmm. yeah since he's not here to do that you're you're doing it for right but she is very independent she's stubborn we were talking about that the other day because she's talking about she's 90 and and she still drives uh every single day gets out and goes to eat and and um it's interesting how people interact with her she talks about people buying her lunch and helping her in and out so it's really neat to hear that about society you think people are cold-hearted and then you hear stories like that so it's good so they're only cold-hearted for us in our middle age you know (laughs) once we get to once we look a little frailer people will be kinder to us maybe we all need to walk around hunched over with a cane and (laughs) (laughs) yeah no but she's good she's you know she she's they both left a really big legacy a good legacy on marriage you you stick it out no matter what mm. and that's another good thing yeah so. yeah so what about your journey with your dad through dementia I mean, with your mom you're experiencing the caregiving not through dementia but maybe more through frailty because she's still really strong yes. in her mind she's actually still really strong period and still driving but she is not dealing with the ravages of dementia what were some of the sad little mile markers of wow I'm what's wrong with dad I'm losing dad what's going on here it's such a gradual thing at least I don't know about early onset dementia but but dad's was such a gradual and you know we're all forgetful sometimes so my sister and I joke oh it's the dementia setting in you know and Mm -hmm. perhaps it is but I'm only 52 so I don't think so but you know we're all forgetful but but seeing that over and over throughout, I guess the hindsight's twenty twenty, so you can look back and see, oh, well, you know, I remember this, I remember that, little areas of forgetfulness. and But but I don't know, Dad just kind of, like I said, went with the flow on things. And until, until the end, until the, about a month before, when they couldn't find anything really physically wrong with him, um, you know, I think I said my mom thought he was sick, but it was his throat. You know, she he was constantly clearing his throat. And I would find, I, I would take them for a doctor's appointment and we'd stop and get a sausage biscuit. And normally he'd eat it right up, but I would find it tucked in my car seat mm-hmm. where he didn't eat it. So little things like that, I thought that's not right. You know, his favorite thing were goo-goos. Mm-hmm. And we would buy him goo-goos and he would not eat 
them. Or I'd get mm. him a milkshake from McDonald's and he wouldn't drink it. So it's like something's not right. And so, of course, we went and had a brain scan and the brain had shrunk. Um, and then he had a swallow study and they couldn't even finish it because his throat, it wasn't working. So, mm. so you know, it was it was progression, but more towards the end that that I really remember while you know and of course he would the saddest thing was he would point to his throat and and not say i know dad that's all i could say mm. you know i can't fix it i can't explain to him what's wrong with it because he wouldn't understand and of course major decisions having to be made like do we want to put in a feeding tube and do we want to you know all these things and and uh we made him do not resuscitate we did not do a feeding tube because that would have been really hard on my mom too, and of mm. course he would have pulled he would have pulled it out, and and it just would have prolonged the inevitable. So, you know, there's a lot of things you have to decide, and that's another thing you have to have an outlet. I don't care who it is, if it's a professional, or if it's a good friend or family member, you have to have somebody to bounce things off of from every direction. You know. Um, what will this mean? If we put a feeding tube in, what will this mean? Well, it means he's going to pull it out. It means it's going to take you all day long to feed him. You know, uh, it's just going to prolong the inevitable. And we have to watch him die longer. That was the hardest thing. It's not to let him die, but to watch him die. Mm -hmm. And that's why I was so thankful it didn't last but a few weeks, you know. So... Yeah. Do you think that your mom compensated for his decline and, and because of that compensation, you all didn't see it or experience it as much until the end? Yeah, she was in denial. Even at the end, she was in denial about how bad he really was because she would force him to eat. And I had to leave the room, but she would force him to eat and he would, had a trash can in front of him. and He would just spit it out because he couldn't swallow and and I understood, I understood where she was coming from, but she's still in, she was still in denial. Till the day he died, she was in denial about how bad he was. And my brother too. The the day my daddy died, my brother said, "Well, let's get him some oxygen from to the hospice nurse." Now he's do not resuscitate, you know. Mm -hmm. So oxygen is not an option. And the nurse goes, "Well, we can bring a fan in here." And I thought, "Yes, you know." They understand the quality of life at the end and and what we've signed off on, you know, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I yeah. think that that is such a hard part for families is that, and, and we are such a fix-it society that it, it's, it's in all of us. I mean, even, and when you're in the experiential moment, you are standing by the bedside of your father um, no professional can really say, oh, you should or you shouldn't. It's just that raw personal experience of what is it in my nature to do for this person right now? Make them comfortable, try to save them. Like, what is my instinct, my survival instinct going to just turn on right now in the moment to do for my loved one? And and sometimes it's it's the right thing quote unquote right thing and it helps them have a very comfortable death and sometimes it's the desperate thing and it's like i i want i want my dad to live 
I don't right. want my dad to, to die. Um, but we, but like the few, the futileness of being completely out of control in that moment. Yeah. Even with the healthcare professionals, if you happen to go to the hospital, like my dad, when my dad's throat quit working and we knew that they thought they could do this procedure where they inject the vocal cords because his throat, you know, when you swallow, your throat closes. So it goes down your esophagus instead of your windpipe, you know, whatever your spit, your food, whatever you're drinking or eating. And dad's was not closing all the way. So it was going to go in his lungs. And that's what they thought would kill him was aspiration pneumonia. But they, so they injected his, we, we, my mom said, let's try it. So he went under anesthesia. They injected the vocal cords. They were trying to swell them up so they would close. And when they, when they extubated and when they took the breathing tube out, he quit breathing. And so they tried three times to do that. And they ended up having to leave it in overnight. And they put him in, it was like a coma, um, I can't remember what the name of the medicine is, but it's white. It's what they give you when you get a colonoscopy. It's, you know, you're not um, really under propofol. anesthesia, but yes, they call it milk of amnesia. Um, <laughs> so they kept him on that. All, I know, kept him on that and a respirator all night long. And we didn't know in the morning if he was going to be okay or not. So the next morning he was actually breathing over the respirator but the procedure did not work. He, he survived it and came out, but the procedure did not work. But I left to go take my kids to school, and I came back, and my oldest sister and mom were in the hospital room, and they, the doctor was in there looking at my dad, and my sister and my mom had their heads in their ha hands. And I remember I looked at him and I said, what's going on? And the doctor said, oh, we were, we're going to do this, this, this. And, and I looked at him. I said, wait a minute. Is any of this going to help my dad get better? And he said, well, no. I said, then we're just going to take him home. Mm -hmm. I thought, you're not going to make my dad a guinea pig. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I didn't. I mean, maybe, maybe I should have said, okay, I'll let you experiment on my dad. But I, my whole thing at the end was I want my dad to be okay with and have dignity. I mean, okay, meaning I've accepted the inevitable. You know, he's not getting better. He's not my dad anymore. Ment mm -hmm. I mean, you know, mentally he's gone. Um, and we're just going to get through the next however long the best we can. How but, much time so, was that from the time you took him home to time he passed? maybe a week or two mm -hmm. when he completely quit eating probably a couple of days after that. I mean, completely, I called his regular doctor and I said, we're ready for hospice. Um, and so that was very hard to my mom. The nurse, it's a long procedure to get um, all that set up. It's so much worth it though. Um, but they, you know, they have to know a lot of details and things. So, um, that was like three or four hours that night, but, but my mom said some really horrible, horrible things to me that night. Um, but again, it's how she was reacting. I understood where she was coming from. Um, you know, 
I guess maybe she was trying to accept that this is going to be it, you know, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and, and of course she didn't like hospice at all because in her mind, hospice was, it's over, you know, Mm -hmm. it was, it was, it was an indicator that I'm sure I hear a lot of people saying this, they're going to kill him or you're just giving up and I'm not ready to give up, but, but it's not, I, being in the healthcare world, um, hospice actually improved a lot of people's lives that I've seen. Now, it depends on when you're bringing hospice in, but I've seen that the the quality of life, it doesn't, like you say, stretch out death, but well, sometimes it does, like meaning that they're comfortable and they live longer because they are actually more... It, in a weird way, enjoying life more, you know, they're not in this tortured, difficult, suffering state of life. They're, they're as much as they can be, um, taking care of both physically and emotionally as much as they can be. Yeah. And that's what we told my mom. We said, this is not a death sentence. It's, they're here to help us cope in whatever we need, whatever dad needs. And cause they're very supportive with the family as well. Um, and, and we, so we told mom basically just to satisfy, I mean, we kind of all knew in our minds, this was going to be it, but at least I did. And, um, we told her, you know, he can, if he gets better, we'll, we'll get rid of him, you know? Right. But, yeah, you graduate but, off hospice. <laughs> exactly. So, but they are, they were great. Um, you know, and like I said, it was, it was just a couple of three or four days, uh, after that, because you know, if you don't eat, you're and he was already so weak anyway, he lost so much weight. <clears throat> and it's, it's, I laugh, it's not funny, but it kind of is funny. I, when a person has dementia, they get fixated on things, and <clears throat> he was fixated on three things pooping, napkins. When we'd go out to dinner, he always had to have a bunch of napkins. And he, um, hats, he, he couldn't find his hat. One day I had to take him out to buy a hat, you know? So it's funny, but the pooping thing, I can remember him jumping up. And of course he was on a walker at the end cause he was so weak. And, and I had to hold his pants up went running down the hall cause, and he wouldn't poop. But you know what, when he died, you know, when you die, your bowels and everything let loose, he pooped a little bit. I was like, I can remember with tears in my eyes going, mommy pooped, you know, so it's just funny. <laughs> it's like, it was, and he would have laughed. He would have laughed at me saying that, you know, right. So, uh, yeah. that's, that's awesome. You know, um, and by the way, that's Pepper saying hello to everybody. My nice dog. That's saying hi, yes. Laurel. I haven't seen you in a while, but, I know. <laughs> but um, what I, what I love to, to put into perspective is that, I think we have this dream fantasy of how we want death to be like nicely, you know, at the age for me personally, I want it to be at the age of 100, almost 101. I want to go to sleep and peacefully like sleeping beauty pass away and, um, you know, that be the end. Right. And that's not right. the way it is. And, but then when I look at it, I, that's not the way birth is either. Birth is a, is a very difficult journey. It's a long journey. It's painful. You, we come into this world screaming, our mom screaming, you know, with a lot of pain. And I think that's how we should look at death too, that death 
in, in all of its amazingness of nature is just as ugly as birth. You know, there's nothing um, that's really picture perfect made for TV about birthing and dying. And if you have people alongside you to make it as comfortable as possible to give birth, to give you everything that you need, they're not preventing you from giving birth. You know, they're not making it happen sooner. They are making it happen better. And I think that's the same when you talk about hospice team when you talk about getting your family and your medical providers to be on the same page with you and even there's a new um emerging even more popular now and i'm sure it will get more and more popular it's called death doulas and again it's those people that are going to be there uh, along with you um as the the expert comforter on a natural journey, not speeding it up, not slowing it down, just making it more comfortable. And I think if people looked at it that way, um, as it, because we acknowledge that birth is not easy. And, and for those mothers out there in the world who've been through it, it's, it's something that you only, you wait till you forget about it before you get pregnant again. Right. You know, do I really want to go through this again? You're so right because, um, you know, in my mind when you were talking, I just thought about all the medications because I had a I had two difficult births and I had some good meds and good doctors and nurses. Um, But same thing in death, you know, when the morning dad died, when I got there to give him his bath, his eyes were rolled back in his head, and I thought, hmm, because normally he would at least look at me and acknowledge. I was there and I thought, I thought he was in a coma. And so of course, when you get hospice, they give you this medical pack that you keep in your refrigerator with all different kinds of things that you might need. And so when I called the hospice nurse, she told me to give him some medicine and 30 minutes later he died, but he, he was fidgety. He couldn't relax. And and that medicine just relaxed him enough to let him go. Mm -hmm. And of course, my mom thinks it killed him, and perhaps it did, but we were already giving him, um, oh, big major painkiller to keep him relaxed. Morphine, Morphine thank you. Um, just liquid under his tongue because he couldn't swallow. But but my sister gave him a bunch that morning, and then I on to- the medicine I gave him on top of um, that, you know, just relaxed him enough to die. Because he was, like I said, he was fidgety. He couldn't. He he was restless, just you know, lifting his arms. He was too arms connected to the body to to pass <clears throat> to let it go. Like the body it, yeah. was overstimulated. Um, yes, and yeah, because I would tell him every day when I would go there, I would whisper, "Daddy, it's okay to go." And I told him that I told my mom that morning. I said, "You need to tell him it's okay to go." And she did, and that's and then like thirty minutes later, he died. So wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, and, and it is, it's hard to grapple where the living and they're the dying. We have to, we have to let go, but they are letting go. And one thing I learned this summer, I mean, I've been doing this for, for 10 years. Um, I've been, I've had so many, not as many of my own personal family members, but so many patients and clients that passed away. And I only learned for the first time this summer from a hospice nurse that 
you don't want to overstimulate the a dying person. That you want to make them comfortable, but but the touching, the rubbing, the talking, the the all the stimulating sounds are engaging them in this world. Right. And that if they continue to be engaged in this world, they their five senses are are our life. It's life on this earth. It's not where they're going. And so to That's give them true that space to let go of the five senses and not to be overstimulated in those moments before death. And so I had a client and um, she didn't have a lot of family. So me and a couple of others uh, cared for her. We were the ones that were there holding vigil for her in her moments um, before, like right before death. And so one day I went in and like, I'm rubbing her shoulder saying, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. And the hospice nurse happened to be there. And she's like, no, no, no. You know, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like you can whisper, but don't overstimulate. And I was like, wow, that's true. I never thought of it that way. I'm comforting her the way I would want to be comforted in the land of the living. Right. And they're, they're passing over out of the land of the living. That is so true. Cause now that you say that, we were all there. My mom, my brother, my two sisters and me, we were all there. And it was a commotion because we were getting him a hospital bed at the house. And so we were all, we were moving beds and we were, you know, we were all in and out. And my brother had picked him up and moved him into the other bedroom. And so you are so correct. I have never thought about that before, but that's true. And well, it's just like with death, we mourn because we're, they're not with us anymore. Right. <laughs> my sister, I mean, my daughter told me um, Tuesday, my oldest daughter, I went to see her in, in Cookville, and we were talking about death for, for some reason. And I think we were looking at all the tornado damage, but she said, you know, I know, Mom, you don't like the word so-and-so lost her mother or so-and-so lost her father. I don't, I never liked that terminology. Mm-hmm. I just say they died, you know. But she said, we mourn the loss of them from this earth. And I thought, okay, I can deal with that. But, it, but again, it's all about us. It, it right. shouldn't be about us. It, you know, I can remember going to the funeral home the first time and the guy going, your dad's in here. And I said, no, my dad is not in there. I know mm-hmm. where my dad is. Mm-hmm. That's his body. You know, and so we mourn the loss of them from us but we mm-hmm. should re- we need to rejoice that they're not suffering anymore um it, you know especially as christians i mean and that's another thing i i know not everybody believes in god and and not everybody has that that support and faith but if you don't i don't know how you get by without it <laughs> that's and and that's another big thing for me is is knowing where my daddy was was and knowing i'll see him again someday mm-hmm yeah, and I think your faith um, has not only been a huge, like a huge core foundation in who you are and how you've gotten through as a caregiver, and I know it is for so many caregivers, but it's also been a part of how you've really blessed this world through, um, and for anybody who wants to check it out, Laurel has a blog, and you share, I mean, I feel like you share almost daily on your blog. You have such amazing stuff coming out. Uh, I can't keep up, but what is it? Waddle on or what? Like where can they? It's called Waddle on. It's Laurel 
laurelburton.com. So L-A-U-R-E-L-B-U-R-T-O-N.com. It is called Waddle On because I like penguins and penguins waddle and it's mm. just fun. But I, I have, that's another thing, journaling or having some sort of outlet like that, um, you know, because especially when things happen in life, it, you're not the only one. It, nothing, the Bible says nothing new is, there's nothing new under the sun. So, you know, whatever you're going through, somebody else has gone through it. And whether you know them or not, so you never know who you're going to reach by telling your story. And maybe that's why it happened to you is so you can help other people. And so that's what I try to do with my blog. It's just an encouragement. It's just to say you're not alone. Um, so, yeah, I, I enjoy it. I try to do it every day. Well, um, you're I don't very always talented get to and you have amazing photos. So if anybody wants to go check out the blog and all the amazing things Laurel um, shares through her blog, including farm photos, which those sunsets, sunrises, those vistas are fantastic. And I get to enjoy them in person every now and yes. again. But you get to share them with us and with the world. Um, and it is it is inspiring to see how God you know, one works through you and works through the nature that you get to share with us from your farm pictures. Um, Thank you, Melissa. Yeah, but but I just really appreciate you, one, as a friend and as my sister-in-law um, on this journey of life and um, just your story and being willing to come on today to the podcast and share your story. Um, I'm calling it the story of stories of strength. I want to have stories of people who have gone through or are going through caregiving journey and because we all can learn from each other, you know, there's, everybody has a unique story and a unique perspective and that's, we're all in it together. We're all here. Um, like Robin, who is on the, the podcast quite a bit, she's been through it. I am more on the active St earlier stages of caregiving you're in two stages of caregiving you're past it and you're present kind of going into the transition between independent to more dependent and this is going to impact all of us it will impact your daughters it's it this is a universal experience kind of right. like corona right <laughs> was a universal experience <laughs> yes we all on. had to deal with that yes so it's like we, this is one of those things is aging dying and caregiving seem to be as um universal as death and taxes so that's right um, it's life it is life it is life yeah and life is it's it's everything all things beautiful ugly and real <laughs> so that's thank right. you Thank you so much, Laurel, for coming on and sharing, sharing your story. I really appreciate you and all that you've shared with us today. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and ask that you subscribe to this podcast. If you find this podcast helpful, please leave a review so we can reach more women like you. You are not alone on your journey, and the Fire Tribe is here to support you. Check us out at DaughtersOnFire.com and our Facebook group for more support and resources. Until next time, remember, you are the fire that fuels the engine of life.